Fans, we know that if you are listening to this podcast, that you're likely a coach. And if you're likely a coach, then you have likely got into your profession to make an impact on your team. Well, today's guest will tell us more about how to best make an impact on your team. You know, there's an arc that all of us coaches seem to go through and we grow along the way. And JP Nurbin's story is one of those growth stories. He is now the founder of TOC Consulting, has a ton of resources, has a great way to help coaches grow through his consulting firm. And we can't wait to bring you this episode today with the great J.P. Nurbin. But before we get to today's episode, check out teachhoops.com slash 816 basketball for incredible basketball resources from the great Steve Collins. And you've heard us talk about him for many, many months, Billy Kegler and the Competitive Mindset Podcast. Check him out wherever you get your podcast and on social media at Competitive Pod. And let's head on into the studio for today's episode with the great J.P. Nurbin. Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris de Blasio. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here as always on the Greatest Games Podcast. A chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches from around the country and the world and have them tell us about their greatest games. We teased it, Chris de Blasio. We're going back to international. You know, we, we, we stepped across the border to Canada uh, early on in the podcast days. Then we took a trip to New Zealand, but we are going to Ireland. And I tell you what, Chris de Blasio, I know you love Ireland. I love Ireland. Um, just wonderful people, wonderful fruit, food. And I think they have wonderful drink there. I've never partaken, but I hear that about Ireland. Uh, but we have... Uh, the honor to be able to talk to the founder of the Thrive On Challenge. We're going to talk more about that organization here in a minute, but he's been a player, he's been a coach, and now he is working with coaches. J.P. Nurbin, welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast. Oh, this is going to be fun, guys, so I appreciate you having me on here. Now, the first thing people will say, Brian, when they just hear that intro is, Boy, JP does not sound like a lot of the Irish people I've heard of before. <laughs> I, could, I could have put on my fake Irish accent. That would have been embarrassing. <laughs> That's because we actually know JP Nurbin from his time at the University of South Carolina. JP, did you grow up in South Carolina, North Carolina, somewhere down there? Yeah, I grew up just outside of Columbia. So I went to Carl Newman High School. From oh, okay. 2001. I probably should have known that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Played for, played for the great Wayne Earhart. Is that correct, JP? I did, yeah. yeah. And then I played a, a year at South Carolina. So 2005, 2006, second NIT year. So, yeah. Was that was the real fun NIT. That was when we dog stomped Louisville. That was an exciting tournament. That was, <laughs> that was wild. It was, you know, you, you barely beat Cincinnati, barely beat Florida State, and then just came in there and just absolutely. Uh, not just dog stop Louisville, but also Michigan. It wasn't Michigan. Yeah, the Michigan game wasn't even that wasn't even a game. Like, I remember nothing about the game. It was such a blowout. Well, <laughs> it was such a blowout that I got to play. You know, that's that was the sign. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in, it was like it was well in hand. So, <laughs> JP, I will admit this: I probably didn't want to see you play in that game because I was actually in the hotel sick with the flu. I didn't actually go to that game. I was stuck in the hotel that day. <laughs> I don't know which game it was, but one of them was on. And obviously, you know, you're like me, your family, like 
hangs on that moment you get to go into the game. But the game was so in hand, ESPN, I think, cut the last minute. And so, like, they saw me come on the court. Then there was, like, a TV timeout or something. They're like, all right, well, this game's over. Congrats, South Carolina. My whole family's like, what? (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I hate to hear that because, like, I know how the world views the NIT. Like, ah, it's not the NCAA tournament. So, let's go ahead. This game's a blowout. We'll just cut away and go to wherever ESPN was going to. But you saw, you mentioned it about Cincinnati, Florida State, on the road, the hostile environments. Those places were absolutely nuts, as I remember, as a GA. And then going to New York, maybe it was an incredible experience. And I can't think of another team in the country that was playing better basketball than us. We were just doing it in the NIT, or y'all were doing it in the NIT. It was crazy. Yeah, I thought, honestly, the Florida State game, I know obviously never played there before. And it was, that, that arena was popping. And then Cincinnati, I forget what happened. There was something external, something with the coach. The coach was, was getting fired. Andy Kennedy was getting fired immediately yeah. upon the game. Whenever their season ended, he was being – because he had taken over just before the season for Bob Huggins when they fired Bob Huggins. And he was only the interim coach. And everyone knew the moment the season over. He was actually – the press release was actually released before we got on the bus that night mm. that he had, that he was out as the Cincinnati coach. Before, we could, before you guys could get showered and changed – and on the bus. Yeah, it was wild. It was a great environment. I guess there was a lot of support for him during the game. And then Devin Downey, I mean, I was, I guess he ended up playing at South Carolina, but he was the fastest player I'd ever seen in my entire life. Uh, we were down a bunch of people, obviously a couple of injuries and stuff like that. And then we got in foul trouble and, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was an exciting game. So that was a great experience for sure. When we when we get off the air, ask Brian Rosefield about that road trip and some academic issues. Anyway, we'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah, I've got a story that's not for the air. Absolutely. <laughs> JP, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey in in coaching and mentoring and, and how you got to where you are now after you know playing a little bit in college and then getting into coaching? Yeah. So before I started TOC, uh, which is a culture consulting uh, business, uh, I had spent a decade in coaching, which I got started. Uh, kind of in a funny story, I, after, you know, being a walk-on for a year at South Carolina, I went on a, you know, in my second semester, I went on a study abroad program to Ireland, like you guys fell in love with the place. Um, it was honestly like a really healing time for me. Like I had, like, I think any player that you talk to that is really serious about their sport, not even just basketball, but you transition from being an athlete to out of that, like it's really difficult. And it obviously brings many of us to go right into coaching. Right. But, uh, for anybody, it's really challenging for me. It was really hard, but it was like really refreshing to get to a place where honestly, like nobody knew me. There wasn't like, I was away from, you know, I grew up in Columbia, went to college there. So it was just great to get away and fell in love with Ireland. Then I got into coaching within the first year there and they heard I played at a division one school. Um, and, or I was just American and I played a division one school. So everyone offered me a job though. I knew nothing about coaching. <laughs> and so I was coaching like youth basketball underage, you know, initially, and then I got a women's league to kind of semi-pro job, got fired from that in six weeks. Cause I didn't stop yelling for six weeks. <laughs> um, so that was a quick, quick, uh, job there, but like 22 years of, uh, 22 years old, I was coaching a men's semi-pro team. They fired their Serbian coach. They needed somebody that would do it for free. I put my hand up, jumped, you know, jumped right at that opportunity. Was very, very uh, ill-equipped for that opportunity, learning experience. Uh, but I spent five years coaching there, and it was an incredible experience. 
Uh, I was not by any means a great coach, uh, but I was passionate and worked my tail off. Uh, it's in that, that you could just move the needle there because of that, you know, because Ireland kind of has a vacuum as far as just people that want to pour everything into it. So did five years there, but met my wife who's American and uh, she brought me back stateside. So I ended up coaching high school basketball in Chattanooga, Tennessee at Notre Dame high school for five seasons there, uh, running an academy there as well. And, and that's when I jumped into start TOC, which uh, I'll try to keep this short, but they like the, the long story short is I kind of hit like a rock bottom as a coach. And it was uh, both personally and within my team. I think within my team, the culture was really struggling um, like, like most coaches, like our, our cultures, you know, we, we have moments where the standards, uh, you're, you're struggling to hold kids to the standard and the relationships start to get tense as you try to hold them to that standard and, and people don't want to be held accountable. So I, I kind of hit, there was this moment of like the culture sucks, but also my team, my own leadership really had kind of deteriorated. Um, I was really unhinged on the sideline. Um, I was, you know, just really emotionally struggling in that moment. So I ended up hiring a guy named Jamie Gilbert, who co-authored the book, Burn Your Goals, uh, just signed up for a mentorship program with him. And he worked with me on what's called, I guess, transformational leadership, you know, uh, as opposed to transactional. So you're about the athletes, you know, the, as people developing them and developing a culture where everybody feels respected and cared about. And he gave me some practical tools and some strategies to just start to change the way that I coached and the way that I developed my team culture. Uh, I went all in on that. Um, I still struggled in a big way, but I also saw some real growth in the culture and my relationships with my players. And so I wrote uh, a blog about the experience, kind of at a low point of that season. Uh, we had a great turnaround that season, but that that blog uh, really resonated with a lot of coaches. It was the first time I realized a lot of people out there, um, other coaches struggle with the same things I struggle with, not just the team culture, but just believing in themselves. Like there's so much self-doubt in coaching, you know? And, um, so yeah, that was the kind of like the first initial step And the blog led to a podcast. The podcast led to me just having conversations with coaches and, and that kind of led to, you know, TOC be kind of becoming this business where I just try to give coaches a lot of practical tools and strategies. You know, we, we got a whole system now to kind of develop the culture, um, and we do that through kind of a mentorship type, you know, personal relationship with the coach, uh, consulting type relationship, as well as a community that we've built of coaches all around the world from the high school to professional level. JP, you're a young coach. You're yelling, screaming, and I've heard you on different podcasts and uh, talk about those those moments. And I was that kid. I was the 22 years old coaching girls basketball in St. Matthews, just yelling and screaming and just just trying to will kids to do what I thought they needed to do. And I was coaching the way that I was coached. And it took me, shoot, I think until eight years ago. So it took me about 10 or 11 years to realize like, well, wait a minute, I, I think I need to change a little bit. <laughs> so for for you to realize that, what what was that? Take a little deeper dive into that force. Like when was that switch flip for you to say, hey, wait a minute, I need some help here. I'm going to reach out to Jamie Gilbert. By the way, he is an unbelievable author. Joshua Metcalf, I know they do a lot of work together. Great guys, great resources out there. But what was that like for you to say, wait a minute, I, I need some help. And then how did you go find that help? Yeah, I mean, I you, you hit it on the head there. That's that's how I was coached. Um, you know, my, even parenting, like my, my parents weren't screamers, but they were firm, you know, like kind of old school in that, in that mentality. 
So um, that that's that's how I started to coach, just purely because I I didn't want to be permissive. I didn't want to let my kids off the hook. I knew they needed to be held to standards. So that was the only way I knew how to do it. You know, um, the the moment the light bulb came on for me, it was actually funny because you mentioned before we started recording about Adam Bradley. Uh, Adam Bradley has lead them up. I had hired or bought the lead them up package. This is ages ago, back when it first started. Um, and I had, we had a leadership coach on our team, you know, and he would give these lessons. And one of the lessons was about profanity and emotional control. Right. And so he's in the front, my leadership coach is in the front of the room in my classroom, my high school classroom, giving this lesson and kind of activity to work with the kids on it. And I'm in the back of the classroom sitting there and I'm sitting underneath this big old poster of John Wooden's pyramid of success. I'll explain why that's important in a second. But he starts the lesson. He says, now that today's topic for this week is going to be a little bit awkward, I think, for, for Coach Nurbin here, because, and he kind of laughed because we're talking about swearing and emotion, like, you know, emotional control. And like, I was bad. I mean, I'll just be honest. I live in Ireland. You know, they don't, there's, there's swearing isn't a problem here. Right. So, um, <laughs> so I was, I really struggled with that. And, and so he kind of laughed and we all kind of chuckled. But I also became embarrassed. And I'm sitting here underneath, and I, I I adore John Wood, and I read every book that John Wood has 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 written or written uh, that's been written about him. And um, the Pyramid of Success, you know, if, for those that don't know it, they should know it. But it's all his like core values, right, in this pyramid. And but he has this great line that's actually uh, was on that poster, and he says, um, you know, uh, the pyramid, you know, handouts and Pyramid of Successes and values are meaningless if those values are not represented within the leader himself. And it's just like the irony is this situation is I'm trying to teach kids about character and I'm trying to be intentional, but my own behavior doesn't, I have a double standard for my players. And it's kind of in that moment, as well as a few people that have my respect uh, that finally came to me and started saying, JP, like, like the way that you're doing things, like there's a better way out there. Now finding out that better way, like, and without sacrificing your standards, without, you know, sacrificing your culture, that's what Jamie started to teach me on. And that's what I've been on this journey in this last five, six years, working to discover. And I'm still on that, you know, and I've, I've, I've been fortunate to have this rapid learning curve and I'm still in and out of coaching, but I've gotten to work with over 75 different coaches and leaders. I don't work with just coaches. I work with even doctors, accountants, you know, stuff like that, you know, but mostly co coaches. So I've had all these labs over the last five years to try new things, to experiment with them. Also the podcast to be able to talk to the people that are on the cutting edge of how to discipline, how to, you know, emotional intelligence, all that stuff. So it's been a really special experience. I'm still learning a lot, you know, about this better way of doing things, but that's what it comes down to is it's, and I, I wasn't a bad coach. I had great relationships with my players. My players loved me. A lot of them did. And some of them would say, that's the way you need to coach me. Some of them would still say that today but I've learned there's a better way of doing it. Uh, I had a great question like five minutes ago. I have no idea what it is. Um, <laughs> it was from your initial thing. Something early on you said, I completely forgot. Um, just one comment I want to make. You talk about like, you know, having to change your ways. And then just, you started as a blog and then started talking with coaches. And Brian knows this uh, every weekend, uh, one of coach up here who I'm friends with, who we've had on the podcast, Eddie Rock Renzio, and I play golf every weekend. And 90% of the time we're talking about our team. 
and things we want to do differently, how we want to become better coaches. And we, we were golfing yesterday and we had a great conversation for 18 holes. I don't think we mentioned golf one time while we were out on the golf course. Um, and we were just talking about approaching this season and, and like the way I'm going to change practice, the way I do practice, because I just don't think it was working and, and how I'm going to set goals for the different players, things like that. Like I'm just, you know, I have to change myself. We have not been very successful. And Brian knows this. And, you know, I have to look in the mirror myself. Um, that was just a comment. But my question for you, JP, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, um, but you mentioned Adam Bradley, uh, Brian, the other, what was the other guy, Brian, you said that does. Uh, Jamie Gilbert, Joshua Metcalf. Okay. Um, we also talked to our good buddy uh, months ago, Matt Park, who's part of a thing called the Positive Coaching Alliance. Uh, we talked to the, who was the other guy from that Christian school, Brian, up in North Carolina, who has the thing. Doesn't he have a thing? Uh, Josh Cole. No. Didn't we talk to a guy that has a program like this as well? Dr. Somebody from up in North Carolina? We'll effort that while you're talking. Okay. So my question to you, JP, is what's unique about what you do? I'm not, again, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Like, why should I go to you? Why should I go to JP Nurbin? To, to get this advice or, or seek out your mentorship? Mm, that's a good question. It, it's kind of interesting. The last five years, you know, you're supposed to be able to have like the elevator pitch, right? When you have a business and, and people ask me what I do and I'll explain it and they'll still not know what the heck it is that I do. <laughs> and even like my sister is sitting there this summer and she's like, so I honestly never thought this would work because I really didn't understand what the heck you were trying to do, but it's great to see things are going really well for you. Um, Thanks for the support, just, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But like, it is that thing. It's, it's, it's actually really, really unique. So the thing that I would say that I do, um, three things. I, I really jump into helping coaches to systematically apply strategies to develop the culture, build the relationships and raise the standards. Right. Well, that's the culture is building is strengthening the relationships and raising the standards in your program and doing that in a way that's not just purely driven by you, the coach, but starts to become more of a player led program. So I think I have a lot of great practical systems and strategies there that that I think are working that I know we're no, we know are working. Um, I think the, the unique thing, too, is, I don't, you know, there's other great people out there that are doing some stuff similar to myself, people like Jerry Lynch um, a, a, out there, Brett Ledbetter, uh, those type of guys. But for me, I've been a long time in, I spent over 10 years coaching. I spent, coached a lot of different teams in Ireland. So I've got that experience, but I've also got all these coaches that I've been fortunate to work with. And there's people, I don't know why they were taking a chance on working with me early on, but I did. And we got to really try things out and learn from some of the things that work and some things that didn't work when it came to the culture building. So you got these practical things. The, the biggest thing I'd say is coaches appreciate that, but they also appreciate the relationship. So, and I'm not trying here sitting and trying to sell or doing, I'm just, we've got four other people that are doing what I'm doing within, within TOC as well now, because there's, it's been such a growth of people needing these relationships in season. So when you have that parent email or you get the, you have a really tough loss or your players act like complete idiots and you don't know how to handle, you know, after that game, like how do you respond to this? Um, you've got a behavioral issue on your team. Your players seem to not be buying in. Their motivation drops. They seem to be resistant to, you know, something you're trying to move move forward with. So all these things, like coaches call me, right? They just pick up the phone, they call, we talk through it. And I'm able to say, well, let me tell you what worked for this guy over here. 
I'm not necessarily the expert, but we've seen what other works for other people. Um, that was really, really unique um, to have that as well as a community. So we actually have, you know, not just be on a group meeting, but we have Zoom calls that coaches are constantly hopping on. Uh, we got a re- leadership retreats once a year that we run out in Utah that people come together. So it's actually been really cool that it's not even just me supporting, but like coaches now, depending on the area that they're in, like we've got, they'll just get together for lunch, but they'll know, Hey, you're in, you're in the TOC community. So we've got guys like up in your area, uh, like Jonathan Tazinski at uh, Woodbridge or Woodridge, whatever it was, he'll go over there to North Hunterton, New Jersey to go have lunch with Kyle Reg. you know, the two of them will get together, you know? And so you have this community of coaches that are all on this journey to become more transformational. And so there's that, that, yeah, it's practical systems and tools. There's also the personal support. There's also this, Hey, we're in this together. And so I think that's, what's really unique and special about TOC now. So it sounds kind of like a cult is what I'm getting at. Is that? No, just... <laughs> it feels like it sometimes. <laughs> Chris de Blasio, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so JP, I'm not asking you to give away uh, all of your, your training to coaches. I, I would highly encourage our listeners to reach out to you. Um, we'll get all that information at the end of the show where they can get in contact with you and put that in the show notes too. But I, I will say, uh, kind of echo the words of, of Coach Frank Martin. He's been quoted around here lately in the last couple of years saying, when, when, when people start talking about, well, kids these days, he says, no, it's, it's not kids. It's, it's the adults in the kids' lives a lot of times that, um, uh, that don't allow them to struggle, that don't allow them to fail, that are coming in to swoop in. So my, my whole point of, I love your, uh, your short answer on uh, those coaches that are struggling right now to get kids to do the things that they want them to do. And especially now coming out of COVID where kids really, at least in Columbia, South Carolina, kids haven't been in school for the last year and a half. And now they're thrown back into school buildings and things have really changed since, the, since they were in school last. So uh, those coaches that may be struggling to have kids, get kids to do the things that they want them to do, uh, what would you tell those coaches to do uh, as, as some things, practical steps to help them out right now? Well, yeah, and I, I think the huge thing is to have to have a bit of a, uh, a, a complete shift in your mindset. So here you're talking about getting coaches or coaches trying to get them to do the things that they want them to do. You've got to start focusing on getting your players to start to do the things that they want to do that align together with what success will mean for them. So what I mean by that is there's really a three-step process that we would kind of roll out with a lot of coaches in a systematic way, but that is you have to establish standards and relationships. You have to support those standards and relationships, and you need to enforce those standards, but you first have to establish them. Every coach needs to have a few non-negotiables. John Wooden has it. Pete Carroll has it. You know, um, you know, John Williams were beyond time. Don't, you know, don't criticize a teammate and never, never swear. Um, I somehow missed that, that line in the book every time I read it, but anyways, um, you know, so, but, but there was also like getting your team to sit down and say, Hey, what does success look like for us? Getting them to define success. And then what is that? What do they need to do? What are the behaviors that will lead them, you know, to be successful? And what are the unacceptable behaviors that are not in line with what success looks like for them? And that's not just wins and losses success. We're talking about the experience. Like ask your team, what do you want the experience to be like as you pursue that championship? And then I, I get them to identify the behaviors and then even take it another step further and say, 
okay, we all agree that these are the things that we need to do to be successful. So how can we support each other when we fail to meet these, these behavioral standards? How can we do that? And then get them to talk about ways that they, we can hold each other accountable. You can do these in, in team meetings, but you also do it in one-on-ones. You ask, yeah, sit down a player, ask him, hey, what's success look like for you? What do you need to do? How can, okay, all those things you say you need to do, you need to work hard, you need to have a good attitude, you need to get in the weight room, you get up shots. When you fail to do those things, how do you want me to coach you in those moments? So you're getting permission for them to coach you. And all of a sudden, now you step into the second process, which is to support those standards. And you can, before you hold people accountable, bottom line is like, you know, Brian, like you don't really need to be held accountable in your job. You really don't. Like you were, you're probably pretty highly motivated. You've got a pretty good vision for what you want and you go after and get it every day. And you don't need your boss coming in there and saying, Brian, you didn't get this done. You made a mistake here. And the same with you, Chris, like you, you lose a game. It's, you don't need someone to come in there and hold you accountable when you make the wrong play call. What you need is someone that's an athletic director that's supportive. It's the same with our young people. Like they just need someone to come in there and support them first, right? So support before accountability. We need to be an advocate for them and we need to remind them of the standard. We need to help them first off, become aware of their current state of behavior, their attitude, their effort. Just bring awareness. Half the time they'll change there. And if they don't, you know, sometimes you got to be that encourager and you got to affirm them in this moment and help them to identify the behavior that's the next step forward, the behavior they have to change. So you come in there and those through conversations, there's ways to empower the players to do that through a lot of our strategies that we like to use. Um, but lastly, yes, you need to enforce the standard. Now, this is where probably Jamie helped me with this massive mind shift. So I was the yeller, screamer. I used a lot of threats. Um, and I would put them on the line and make them run when they didn't work hard, right? The bottom line is that's that's not what type of culture I wanted to build. Uh, and so we talked, we started to change, and we started to train our players to see practice as a privilege. Practice is an opportunity to get better. So when a guy didn't work hard in a drill, you'd try to come in there and support, bring awareness to it. But if he failed to correct his behavior, we just say, hey, you step off, we'll see you in the next drill you've lost the opportunity to get better. Now coaches go, oh, that's crazy. Some kids will love that. Well, first off, 90% won't. They will hate that, right? They want to get better. They recognize that. Why are we running kids? Why are we, why are we doing all this conditioning, right? First off, it's supposed to be a good thing for them. Secondly, it sends the wrong message, right? I was really, really strict. I used a lot of threats, but then the day I was really permissive because I would yell, scream, make my kids run. Then the day, my best player, he still played on Friday night because I knew I needed him to win. But we started using this practice is a privilege, an opportunity to get better. Same thing in the games. We pull a kid out of the game. He has an attitude. Hey, man, we've talked about what exceptional behavior and what unacceptable behavior looks like on that bench. Until we see you correct your attitude and your mental state there, you can't go back into the game. That players knew that. So you give them an opportunity to reset themselves, come back in there. You do that. So, you know, occasionally, yes, you have to ask a kid to sit out the rest of practice, but the majority of the time, you can enforce that standard kind of in a progressive consequences way where you're emphasizing that they've chosen to not work hard. They've chosen to not have a great attitude. And thus the consequences, they don't get to get better in that drill. Uh, That's a massive shift. Also, we try to use like more enforcing through restorative consequences. So players get into a fight, player yells at a coach. Okay, let's rather than a punishment, like what do we need to do to fix the relationship? The trust has been broken, the, the relationship's been harmed. So we get really creative in those ways as well. So establish your standards, you know, build into those relationships, support those standards, relationships. And then yes, you got to come in and enforce them and you got to hold people accountable. But only when you've agreed upon the standard, 
what success looks like, and only when you've tried to support that individual. JP, I love I love all of that. And one quick story: I think it was maybe three years ago, having a conversation with one of our one of our coaches at Ridgeview. Um, he was beating his head against the wall about his kids, and he said. You know, they're, they're not doing what I want them to do. Just, uh, just to quote, I guess, every coach in the country, right? Maybe in the world, right? And um, I asked him, I said, well, what do they want? And he said, well, I don't know. So he went and asked them, what do, what do you want? And they said, well, we want to win a state championship. And from that conversation, just to echo what you're saying, they built their essentially their norms for practices. They went on to have a hugely successful, outwardly successful year, uh, not because of the question I asked my coach, but they, uh, what I'm hearing in you, what you're saying is a lot of clarity. Where are you going? And then how do you want me to coach you when you're not going where you where you say you want to go? And I just think it's so fascinating uh, that to, to move from that autocratic, I will tell you where we're going model to hey, where do you want to go? Where, what do you want to do? And, and OK, now this is how we get there. Uh, I, I think it's just so, so, so powerful. Chris de Blasi, I know you were ready to chime in. Well, first of all, I want to say, um, JP, uh, you don't know me very well. Brian knows me well. I don't bullshit people. I have fallen in love with everything you've just said. And like I said, we've had other coaches on who do, who do similar things and, and not that their, any of their stuff was bad or whatever. So you can tell your sister, you explained it perfectly to me. <laughs> um, just that whole thing about the practice thing was like, was really just blowing my mind. And I'm going to afterwards, I'm going to rewatch this, take some notes and, and talk to my players about that stuff. Um, Cause that just sounds phenomenal. Uh, like, I don't know, maybe it's, it was like, uh, what was the movie office space? You ever see office space JP when the fat guy croaks and like his whole worldview changed. Well, that whole thing about practice, like, Hey, you don't want to work hard in this drill. Okay. You can sit that. Now you've lost the opportunity to get better. I just, just when you, the way you said that and the way you explained it, I was just like, Oh my God, that is unbelievable. And then to me, and I may be, I may be reading this totally wrong to me that then, so then the kid goes, well, why am I not playing more? Well, because three times in the last two practices, you've lost the opportunity to get better. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, there's not only, not only you've lost the actual opportunity, you've lost my trust, you've lost your teammates' trust and things like that. So again, maybe I'm reading that totally wrong. No, no, absolutely. You're getting it. And here's the thing, what I would say to coaches is that are still, Hey, you know, I still, I got my way and it works. It's effective. Well, first off there's short-term effectiveness and there's long-term effectiveness and the long-term motivation. You've got to tap into intrinsically motivated individuals. You've got to stop using extrinsic motivators, you know, the character stick first off. So that's long-term effects. Secondly, what I'm talking about here, like I said, the way I used to coach, I still had a great impact on my players, a lot of my players, but there's a lot of players that, got through my net and I wasn't able to impact. I wasn't able to change their lives. I started doing this and there's players there. I know I would have never gotten, I would never reached. And all of a sudden they were able to have massive turnarounds and massive shifts in their mindset and how they approached our team and their practice. You know, it, it was just, there, there's so many amazing stories I, I could share with you, but I, I really think it is. Yeah. Like you said, it's, it is, it's when, once you realize that you take this, it don't, will not just blow your mind it will blow your player's mind. Like when I ask players now, like when I go and do, and I'm asking them to set standards, I say, okay, you know, what should the consequences be? You ask your players that, what should be the consequences of you failing to meet those standards? 
there's always like crickets or there's like, oh, you could yell at us or you can run us. Like nobody knows, like everyone's all uncomfortable. Like we even know we're all uncomfortable. Oh, we'll get the bike out, you know, like we'll get the treadmill out. We'll do all these old school tactics, which, you know, nobody's really comfortable with and it doesn't make logical sense. It doesn't make a lot. Why do we have so much entitlement in sports today? Because we don't sit kids. We don't hold them to a standard in a way that we really hold them. Like we'll run them, we'll yell at them, we'll make them get on the bike, but we won't really take away the thing that is the actual privilege. It's a privilege to play this game. It's an, it's an opportunity that not everybody gets to, to play whatever team that is. You know, like they made the team. That should be special. And so we're teaching them it's special and it is an opportunity and a privilege. So absolutely, man. I'm, I'm glad that that you, you, you resonated with that. <laughs> I mean, and more than just that, but that was like really, I started like already picturing the meeting I'm going to have with the team to talk about some of these things. Because uh, like on time is one of my things. And, and, and I have not done a great job of reinforcing it these last couple of years. And, and you know, that's, that's my fault. And I recognize that. Um, and, but that's a longer discussion. Um, but part of what we like to talk about is some of the fun stuff, the privilege of playing this game and coaching this game. So now we want to hear, JP, you said you've coached all over different levels, professional levels, youth levels, um, intermediate levels. Tell us about or bring us into the gym for one of your greatest games, one of these games that's most memorable for you. And I will tell you this, no pressure, because we've had, we've had people that have talked about losses and we've had people that have not talked about a championship game or anything like that. And I think – with what you're doing with coaching, you understand that it doesn't necessarily have to be a game like that. It could be a game in the middle of the season where your kids realized something or did something and it really brought your team closer or better or, you know, really hammered home what you were trying to get to as a coach. So why don't you tell us about one of those greatest games of yours? I'm going to give you two because I'm going to give you a loss and a win. So okay. sorry to break the rules here. So the loss. No, no, that's what I'm saying. The yeah. losses, I think when people talk about losses are great. So, so back in 2000 and. 11, 2012, 2012, I was, I had already announced that I was leaving Ireland. I was moving, moving to Tennessee to coach. Now I told my players that I had coached at the youth, uh, uh, was like under 18s club team. Now I coached many of these guys five years at that stage. And I told them that I was leaving and it was really devastating. We'd done two trips to America at that stage. I was really close with them, their families, incredible relationships with these kids. So I tell them I'm leaving. It's really, really hard, but we finish out the year. Now, we were playing, this is a team, they're called the Limerick Lakers. Um, four years prior to that, I moved them into the toughest league in Ireland for, for their age group. The first game we played, we lost 108 to 21. So, yeah, yeah. so we played this, this, this uh, town called or club called Balancholic. So, anyways, we're playing four years later. What is like Balancholic merged with some other club there to make some super team, right? It's like the Lakers, right? You know, it's the super team's been assembled. Yet we're playing them in the semifinals um, with the exact same roster we have. We just picked up one kid from Brazil and he got hurt like in the first few minutes. So, the same players four years later that beat us, plus they got a few extra all stars. And we lost that game in overtime on a buzzer beater from like their eighth man in the corner. But like, we all cried. The kids were crying, you know, like it's they're like 16, 17, 18 years old, just an amazing experience because it was like, we worked for that, for that, you know, all those, those years. And to see that development, they still talk about that to this day. Uh, we had an, they threw me an amazing go away party there, which was Irish style, it was at a pub with all their families and all my friends. There's like over 100 people that abandoned the DJ. 
Um, there was a lot of under 18 people drinking. Guinness. I'll just say that right now. Uh, but it was amazing. So that was a, you know, it's a special year, but that game was, was really, really special. And they went on to beat Balancholic the next year and they called me right away from the locker room to celebrate. So special group of guys there. So that's, that's my first story. Um, I, the second story is, um, was near the end of my time in Notre Dame and Chattanooga, uh, that year that, you know, I started the blog and was struggling. Well, we actually had my worst record I've ever had as a coach. We were like four and 13 at one stage, a lot of factors into that well, late football season, 10 of our 12 varsity players were playing football, stuff like that. But we got creamed by our conference rivals, CCS, twice that year by 40 and 30. We go in to play them in the semifinals. They're number three in the state. And we are up 22 to like one in the first quarter. We absolutely destroyed them. We went on to win this, the, 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 the final, uh, but it was the way that we won. It was because we were so bought in. Like we, 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 we expected to win at that stage. They thought they had it in the bag, but we were so confident. Our guys were dripping in sweat after 10 minutes of the warm up. Their guys were just kind of going through the motions. We had been on a bit of a run and that kind of really was just, it was special to see it all come together because there were so many people outside uh, from fans, the parents that were like, this, this team's done. We just made it a great, you know, run there to win back-to-back conference titles. So it was, it was pretty cool experience that game just to see everyone fill their role. Like it just became so clear their roles. There was such great buy-in. And when you have that type of thing happen within the team, it's, it's pretty special. So JP, I want to I want you to take us in the locker room after the loss of your your, your first one, but a shot in the corner overtime four years earlier, like you say, you just gotten absolutely blown out. Are those kids able to at least I don't know articulate? Maybe not the word, but some some semblance of articulate. Say, hey, you know what, guys? Hey, we've come a long way. We just took this team to overtime and we just lost. Or are they just in there just like, come on? Is, is it, t- t- tell us about that post-game immediacy in the locker room and then maybe a couple of days after that with those kids. Yeah, so I had one of my players. He actually, former players, he, he visited me there a few weeks ago. Came and spent the night with uh, our family here in, in Ireland. And we went out and had a few drinks and we're talking about that. And he was, he was reminiscent about how he was crying. Um, his name's Shane. Um, there's another story about him crying that I'll share in a second, but we have such a close relationship, but he, he was in that locker room crying his eyes out. And he gave this speech, but he, she was like, it was the, he was laughing about it the other day. He's like, that was the lamest speech ever. He, he was like, I love you guys. You're like my brothers. And it was one of those type of things where everybody's crying and everyone's telling each other they love each other and you know, those type of things. So it was that type of moment. And, uh, you know, when I got married three years later, uh, Shane worked at McDonald's for an entire summer, saved up his money and flew to New Jersey so he could go to my wedding. And there at my wedding, he was crying as well. So <laughs> that's, so we call him the crying Shane from now on, but uh, yeah, it was an emotional, emotional locker room, Brian. So take us, I want to know about the locker room after the first time you played that team or, that, you know, what do you say after a game like that when you lose 108 to 21 or whatever it was? Yeah, and it's it, that was that was one where players are going, "Why are we playing these people?" And it was just like this demoralized, like we don't belong here. And I'm like second year coach, I'm fired up, and I'm like, 
they will never do that again. <laughs> like I'm going ballistic, you know, like totally not the way that I should have handled it. But I think at the end of the day, they still respected, like, like they said, it, reminiscing on that, they said they still will talk about that game of how I never like, like you, no matter how much we lost, you never stopped caring or stopped fighting. Like you never said like, we're, we're not, we don't belong here. You always acted like we did belong here. Um, and I think that motivated, you know, these kids that some of them would drive, ride, ride their bikes 30, 45 minutes in the rain to get to practice. They'd hand over two euros so they could go to practice. Like, it's not like, and we'd practice in a gym with no heat and you'd wear your hoodie and you'd, you could see your breath. And, you know, if somebody to dunk the ropes on that held the basket would start swinging. Like we live, we, we, it was it, basketball in Ireland is like, it's in the dark ages, right? You know, we were one step up from a peach basket. That's all, you know, like it's <laughs> in most of the gyms, but these kids love the game and love being there. Um, so yeah, it was, it was like this thing of, we don't belong here, but I didn't, I didn't allow them to wallow that long. That's for sure. Yeah. I, in my, uh, even my coaching freshman, before I coached varsity, but the two years that I've coached varsity, I, there was only one game where I feel like my players gave up. When we've lost a lot, Brian knows my record right now in two years of varsity coaches, three and 34, I think. Uh, so there's been, pl- been plenty of L's on the schedule, but there was only one game where I felt like they gave up. And that was the only game where I was not I, uh, upset might not be the right word, but like I said, like I was disappointed in them. And I told them that the next day in practice, you know, I was like, you, you guys gave up on that game. There's been other games we've lost by more, but you never gave up. You kept playing. You kept playing hard. And I think, um, I think they recognized like that it was a different, it was a different attitude that I had being disappointed in the fact that they gave up. Yeah. You know, it's funny. There's, a, there's another story of coaching in, in Chattanooga where I, I had the same thing happen. Our kids gave up. We got absolutely creamed by Knoxville Catholic, you know, and they went on to win almost, I think, losing the state championship game that year. But um, yeah, it was, it was like one of these games, but this is when I kind of made that change in my coaching. And I think a year ago I would have ripped them, you know, and I've been like slamming stuff against the lockers. And I just realized that like, that doesn't like, what's the purpose of that? Like they're going to go out, their parents are going to rip into them. They're already feeling bad enough. So I just stopped trying to like make a post game, a big deal. So I just said, all right, hands in, love you guys. We'll deal with it tomorrow. You know, we'll just deal this tomorrow, guys. And, and you know, the th- I want to share this one story of like my favorite game at South Carolina um, was my first game that I got to dress. And I remember we were playing Pitt at home um, and we were with them. It was like CBS was there. I mean, I was like, what a, what a, what a first game is, a, you know, to, to be on the bench. Right. But it was awesome. Like, you know, like CBS, it's the Saturday game that I grew up watching and we were with Pitt, I think to the end. And then they kind of just made the jump and whatever, finished us off. And Pitt was like number three in the country at the time. And I was expecting Coach Odom to come in and rip everybody because that's what I grew up around, you know? And um, he just kind of came in and just said, man, that one stings, guys. I let that one get away there. We're going to get back at it tomorrow. Don't worry about that, All right? We'll, we'll get – and that was like profound experience to see a coach take ownership of a part of a loss – and also just like not have to rub the, the loss into the, you know, into the wounds even more, even when your guys give up, like bottom line is like, it's just, it's not beneficial. You know, um, I didn't take enough notes from that when I first saw coach on him do that, but that I still remember that story too. Yeah. I think he was ahead of his time in a lot of ways that that next play idea 
Uh, he really lived it. I've forgotten about that story, JP, uh, to be able to say that's essentially a larger, hey, next play, next game, we'll get back at it tomorrow. What a, a powerful message that, that he delivered. And he was, um, you know, he was a guy that, I mean, it still is a guy, but it still was a guy that would maybe be considered from the old school. But I remember him uh, with, with some of our guys not yelling, not screaming. It took a lot for him to get really vocal and upset in practice. It was usually him coming in kind of the side door, like coming up and whispering in a guy, putting his hand on a guy's back and saying, Hey, you know, and it, and it worked. And like I said, like I said earlier, we were playing the best basketball of anybody in the country. I would, I would put us up against anybody that year, even in 05 as well, uh, because of his attitude and outlook on, on things there. So, um, and I, and I think the thing that I'm hearing through all of this, all three of us that are on this call that, that we all have our own journey. It took me 10 or 11 years to realize I don't have to yell and scream and, and raise my blood pressure every time we're on a basketball court and it took you a couple of years and, you know, and we're all evolving and everybody's on their own journey. And so, uh, and, and it's, we're fortunate to have guys like you JP that are in this space that can help those coaches that are ready to make that change. So, Tell us what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you to learn more about your services and, and, and to learn more about what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, you can head over to thriveonchallenge.com. That has got some articles and some, I got a lot of like free PDFs that are just going to give you a lot of real practical strategies and tools to just start moving your culture forward. So if you head over there and check that out, also you can check out the Coaching Culture podcast. Um, that's got a lot of stuff there. It's every week. It's just you sometimes there's guests from, it's not a lot of coaches. And, and most times it's, it's, um, we, we bring on the world's leading trauma psychologist, Dr. Bruce Perry, who just wrote a book with Oprah. We've brought on Mike Abershaw, uh, it's your ship, you know, captain Mike Abershaw. We we've had James clear on author of atomic cabinets. I mean, we have a lot of people in this, um, area around, you know, human development, behavioral change, leadership, you know, we really go all over the place there. We've had some great coaches on there as well, like Dave Brandt, Messiah College, and just some other really great guys out there uh, that are doing things the right way. And they're always on the search for doing things a better way. And I think that's the big thing, uh, you know, Brian, is that we're, you know, it, the, the things that we talk about, they're not the best way, but they're better than the way that we used to. And we're always looking for the next best thing. Like we're always looking to grow and improve. And that starts with ourselves first. I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, if we really want, uh, we can't force others to change. We can only invite them to change. And we do that best when we start to go on this journey to improve ourselves and we're honest and transparent with our players and our coaches on our staff. And so I guess that'd be my encouragement uh, for anybody that's listening. It's a beautiful thing, JP Nervin. This is uh, this has been awesome. We really, really appreciate you coming on the show. This, is, this has been great. I appreciate the opportunity to reconnect with some uh, former Gamecocks. This has been really cool. So, Yeah, well, we, we appreciate it. Like I said, we'll link all that stuff in the show notes for folks to get to you. But for now, we will go ahead and button this one up. For my co-host, Chris de Blasio, I am Brian Rosefield, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Games.